On behalf of the Boston Bar Association and the Health Law Section, I want to thank you for attending and welcome you to this 90-minute uh, session in which we will be talking about abundant hot topics in post-acute health care. Uh, and we have been fortunate in convening um, an esteemed industry leader roundtable panel for you this morning. I want to uh, start off by uh, thanking Emily Kretschmer, who you'll hear from in a moment. Emily joined me um, in planning this program, and we are thrilled to be in a position to bring you what we believe is a truly cutting-edge topic at this moment in time. Um, as I mentioned, we have about 90 minutes. We are structuring this as a modified roundtable in the sense that um, Emily has graciously agreed to give an overview of what some of those hot topics are that we then intend to um, use our panel uh, to do a deeper dive on. I have a series of questions that I am prepared to ask in my capacity as moderator once Emily is done with her presentation. But as Noah indicated, um, there is a Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And so if at any time you have a question that you would like to add, ask, please uh, put it in the Q&A feature. I will manage those questions and will incorporate those into um, the moderated portion of the program. Uh, before we kick it off, let me um, briefly introduce um, the panel for you. Emily Kretschmer, as I mentioned, helped plan this. She is a, a partner in the health law practice at Kokitas and Bluestein. In addition, we have Adam Del Molino from the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. He is the Director of Virtual Care and Clinical Affairs. Mary Moscato joins us. She is President of Hebrew Senior Life Healthcare Services and Hebrew Rehabilitation Center. Alyssa Sherman, who is President of Leading Age Massachusetts and Kimberly Skihan, who is the Director of Compliance, Regulatory and Quality at Symmetry. And finally, um, I am again, moderator Ann Murphy, partner in the healthcare practice at Aaron Fox Ship. So without further ado, uh, and again, looking forward to an invigorating um, discussion, I'm gonna turn it over to Emily, who is going to uh, kick us off, and then that will be followed by the detailed moderated Q&A. So, Anne, thank you very much. I want to, you know, thank you for bringing me on board to help plan this roundtable. As, you know, you said, this is going to be a really exciting conversation, very relevant to what is going on in the healthcare continuum today. And, you know, I want to use our first few minutes to really set the stage and give our audience um, some points about what is happening, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID, what is going on in post-acute care. Post-acute care has always been a really part, important part of the healthcare continuum. And as I was just telling the panel um, prior to us signing on, you know, I think one big benefit out of the pandemic is it's really shown a light um, some of the negative, but a lot of the positive. And I think it's really shown that it's an important and crucial linkage um, in our healthcare continuum. So I'm really excited to be a part of the conversation today. 
Um, so let's see. I want to kick it off and just set the stage and talk about what is post-acute care services, because it's not one thing. It's really a broad spectrum of services that are provided outside of the acute care hospital. So, you know, the order I have here is sort of um, a descending order from acuity and starts at a more institutional-based um, post-acute care service and moves to the home and community-based setting where you see a lot more of the post-acute care and where we're only going to continue to see more growth. So, you know, step down from an acute care hospital if you still need hospital-level services but are more on a rehab basis, or if you're a long-term chronic, <clears throat> excuse me, chronic patient who needs vents, you would end up in an inpatient rehab facility, shorthand for that for Medicare, they call it an ERF, or a long-term acute care hospital, um, which is a chronic hospital where patients on average stay more than 25 days. Um, you know, in Massachusetts, we've seen the numbers of those facilities over the last I'd say five to 10 years start to, you know, decrease as there's been a broader push to keep folks in the home, um, which I think is a theme that will continue to come up throughout our conversation today. Then you have the nursing facility, which in Massachusetts, it has um, three different levels. There's skilled care, then there's nursing care, and then there's a rest home, which is more for elders who need support with activities of daily living, but it's still licensed by the Department of Public Health um, and they can't provide that level of skilled services you need. Um, from there, then there's hospice services. Then hospice can be provided in the home. It can be provided in a nursing home or it could be provided in an inpatient hospice um, home as well. There's a few inpatient hospices located throughout the state. Then you have home health, um, which is home care, such as nursing and therapies that are provided in your home. Um, in Massachusetts, that's coordinated through aging service access points and other home care agencies as well um, that we'll talk about later on. Assisted living, which in Massachusetts is a residential model. And then you have um, new hybrid and innovative models, which um, some have been around for a long time and some are newer. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about those, but they include continuing care retirement communities, PACE programs, mobile integrated health, hospital at home and nursing home at home. All right. So the Mass Hospital Association, um, and Adam is going to be part of our conversation today, put together a great guide to post-acute care. And I thought this was just a really nice visual of all the various spokes on the wheel that make up post-acute care. You know, I think we think nursing home is post-acute care, but I think there's a lot of other services that really are out there in the care continuum to serve the patients. You know, one that I think is really important and is also continues to get lots of attention is this concept of social determinants of health, right? When an individual leaves a hospital, making sure they have the correct social supports, they have housing, they have meals, they have transportations, 
all of this goes to the overall whole person um, centered care model that the Commonwealth and, and healthcare system is focused on. So I just want to clear the air because post-acute care is really a misnomer because it doesn't mean that your care stops. It's really a lot of care, and most of our care is all post-acute. It includes subacute, it includes recuperative, rehab care, chronic care. There's essential components into it. You know, it's important because it improves patient outcomes. It lowers our hospital um, rehospitalizations and ER visits, and it overall will lead to system-wide cost savings. Um, as I mentioned before, there's a shift and a focus on keeping individuals in home-based post-acute care in their communities where they can age in place. And we'll talk about some of the innovative models that are out there to help address this. Um, and importantly, in Massachusetts, the Mass Health Policy Commission has for a long time now been calling for a reduction in the use of institutional post-acute care. So I thought this graphic was um, a really nice way to set the stage. It shows the data from MedPAC, um, which is a nonpartisan independent legislative branch that provides Congress with analysis and policy around the Medicare program. And unfortunately, the way that the data works and the data collection is all of our data somewhat lags. Um, so, you know, the most recent data I was able to find um, goes back to 2019, but it shows you that before the pandemic, you know, more than half of the Medicare um, care in, was coming from nursing homes, and the other big chunk was in home health. And then you can see that the um, rehab and the LTAC component is a much smaller piece of care that the Medicare beneficiaries are receiving. So I think a big point of our discussion today will be around how has COVID impacted post-acute care in Massachusetts? And, you know, going back to that theme of, you know, moving from institutional post-acute care to community post-acute care, I thought it'd be helpful to look at some recent data points that the health policy put out in their most recent cost rep trends report. Um, and again, their their data goes back to pre-COVID and, you know, pre-COVID, 18.1% of um, discharges from the acute care side were going to institutional post-acute care. So the LTACs, the ERFs, and the nursing homes. Compared to nationally, you saw 15.5%. So some of this data is what was driving the health policy Commission's, um, you know, long-term position and advocacy to reduce institutional post-acute care um, to lower cost settings within the Commonwealth. But, you know, March 2020 came and, um, you know, life has shifted. And, you know, what I think is really interesting, if we take a snapshot now of what is happening in the acute care setting and the transitions of a care to post-acute, you know, I'd be curious to see what these numbers are, because as of December 2022, there were over a thousand inpatients statewide awaiting discharge to nursing homes, LTACs and ERFs and home health. 
um, over 40% of those discharges were waiting 30 days or more. And there's a whole host of reasons that there are backups um, in moving through the transitions of care and the throughput. You know, the first one, and I think the biggest one, and this is all data that the Mass Hospital Association has collected, has been insurance authorizations. But that is on itself, you know, not the only reason. I mean, I think they're a whole host and they all play together. Um, you know, there's been challenges getting advanced directives in place and the proper authorities to discharge residents from the hospitals to the nursing homes where specific authority under a guardianship is required. A big piece of today's conversation is going to be around workforce and staffing, and that's a big critical component um, and reason why the throughput cannot move as quickly as needed. There's also a need for specialized behavioral health and substance use disorder services that, again, you know, the workforce um, and availability of services is impacting those as well, and you know, difficulty getting necessary transportation. So these are just some of the reasons why we're seeing a backlog in our acute system um, and having a challenging time getting individuals to post-acute at a lower cost setting. Um, but I think as we go on today, we're going to talk a lot about innovative um, solutions that the industry is looking at and has already put in place to help alleviate um, this throughput issue. So here are a few um, graphics to just display, you know, some of the data that I just talked about around throughput and transitions of care that you can just see across the state that, you know, Metro Boston has a high concentration, but it's really statewide that this is an issue. And, you know, some folks are at the hospital more than 30 days up to six months. And all of that every day that an individual stays in an acute care setting, they're at higher risk for, you know, additional hospital-borne infections and high levels of care. And really, we want to get everyone to a place where they're receiving the care that they need. So um, if you read any kind of healthcare literature, everybody knows that workforce challenges are at the forefront. And, you know, there are a whole number of reports being done on this, it's reviews and analysis, you know, all the trade associations, Mass Hospital Association, Mass Senior Care, Leading Age, the Home Health Associations, the Hospice Federation are all really focused on workforce. They've been focused on workforce um, pre-pandemic. And this is, again, just continued to exacerbate it. You see other agencies and think tanks putting out reports. Um, you know, the Health Policy Commission is has a report that's forthcoming. Um, so just nationally, you know, in nursing homes, we haven't seen unemployment at, at a low for the last, it's at a new low. It hasn't been this low for the last 13 years. Um, we're seeing around a 23% vacancy rate. And a lot of that is in what's called certified nurse um, assistants, CNAs. Um, and we'll talk about the challenges there. But because there has been, there's a huge vacancy rate and it's been hard to find staff, facilities have shifted and there's a high need both on the acute side and the post-acute side to, to depend on nurse staffing agencies. 
And a lot of these nurse staffing agencies become very expensive option for the provider. And, you know, the challenge in it has been a lot of the nurses that were employed directly by facilities have either opened up their own staffing agencies or gone to work for staffing agencies that are then charging the facilities a higher rate. So at the end of the day, you're getting the same care and working with the same people, but paying much, much more for that. Um, that's coupled with the challenges that, you know, on the nursing home side and in the hospital side, there are mandated staffing ratios for nurse, for nurse care. You know, when you can't hire folks, facilities have a challenge meeting their staffing ratios, which then in turn cause other um, problems in the care delivery. But, you know, there's also a challenge of, you know, how do you attract talent? And if everybody's out there looking at the same pool of talent, you know, the bigger institutional clients have are able to offer better benefits. Um, better packages, and it, it just becomes a race to get the same individuals. But, you know, some of the ways that we've seen the Commonwealth um, address this, which, you know, during the pandemic, Massachusetts created the first ever um, online job portal dedicated to filling positions in nursing homes. They brought in the National Guard um, at different periods in time very early on to help with workforce shortages and staffing. We've seen, you know, employers create incentive programs. We've seen a lot of unique partnerships and collaborations develop that didn't exist between agencies and a lot of schools and training programs. And you really see employers doubling down and investing in their workforce and growing um, their workforce internally and really giving them the supports to create the pipeline that's needed because, you know, I don't need to tell every lawyer here on the call today that there's been a lot of burnout um, during the pandemic. And, you know, the pipeline that's there now just it's not sufficient. We need to continue to work on it and expand the pipeline. Um, I mean, even within the nursing world, you know, just finding nurse educators to then teach the pipeline has been a real challenge. So financial challenges in post-acute care, you know, in addition to the workforce, Post-acute care across the spectrum is very heavily regulated. I could go on and on about the regulation and how every state and federal agency really has their hands in post-acute care. Um, in Massachusetts, we have the Department of Public Health, Mass Health, our state Medicaid program, the Attorney General, the state auditor. Um, just to sort of give you a very high-level snapshot in. The last um, federal fiscal year, the Attorney General's Office Medicaid Fraud Division recovered more than $71 million um, through 35 civil settlements and very um, with various entities, many including post-acute care, including home health agency, adult day health, nursing homes, um, substance abuse treatment centers. So you know, it's a really a focus of our enforcement agencies and they're using their 
um, Chapter 93A in Medicare and Medicaid fraud um, powers to investigate abuse and neglect and mistreatment and financial exploitation of patients um, in the post-acute care system. You know, on the federal level, you have the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the Office of Inspector General, um, and the Department of Justice. Um, I mean, I think it's telling that right before COVID in, in early March 2020, the Department of Justice at that time under Attorney um, General Barr announced a national nursing home initiative where they were going to coordinate and enhance civil and criminal efforts to pursue nursing homes that provide grossly substandard care. So, you know, you see both a federal um, target, but that has been going on here in Massachusetts, you know, prior, during, and I think will continue um, as we see um, this new administration step in. I mean, we shall see. Um, you know, on the federal level, Back in March of 2022, President Biden, you know, called out nursing homes. Um, and, you know, I think there's been a lot of light on nursing homes during the pandemic, but we've seen CMS really double down on their focus on um, scrutiny of what is happening in facilities. Um, in addition, we've seen a lot of COVID-19 money flow to the post-acute care providers. And now sort of the, the, the dust has settled, you know, the government's going to look to see how providers have used that money and if they've used it correctly. So, you know, it came and provided a lot of help, but now they're going to look to recoup. And I think just to, you know, say what's going on with some of our other providers that aren't nursing facilities, the Government Accountability Office just a few weeks ago released a report calling on CMS to tighten up uh, reporting of hospices. So it's not just nursing homes that, you know, all of our post-acute providers are going to be subject to scrutiny by um, the government regulators, because at the end of the day, the majority of the payment is coming from Medicare and Medicaid to these providers. Um, so, you know, other financial challenges are they have they already had a lot of reporting requirements during COVID. The reporting requirements were constant and ever changing. That adds administrative burdens and costs to the system. We've seen vaccine mandates and stringent infection control procedures that these providers have had to put in place, again, adding additional cost and impacting their workforce, you know, to the extent they need to get advanced directives, that's additional cost if people are coming in and incapacitated and they don't have a healthcare proxy. Um, in Massachusetts, you need to obtain a guardianship, which is a court process that these post-acute providers, you know, need to ultimately pay for. Sometimes it happens in the acute care setting and the hospital needs to get the guardian in order to discharge them. Um, and because of all the financial challenges, we continue to see a lot of consolidation throughout the marketplace. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit to combating some of the financial challenges through consolidation and that you see cost containment. Um, you create vertically integrated systems where providers can treat the whole patient and there's um, continuity of care. 
there's able to do greater workforce investment and you have more flexibilities with your workforce. And oftentimes there's a willingness to take on more risk or innovation in a larger system. So this is kind of the exciting part. And I think the part our panel is really um, gonna be looking forward to talking about are what's going on in innovating in post-acute care. And, you know, we have a number of programs and I think some of the, the first three or four bullets, well, I think the first three bullets have been in place prior to the pandemic, but I think, you know, have continued to play an important role. Um, so I'm just briefly gonna highlight them. You have the PACE program, which is a program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. Um, it was established by Medicare and for individuals 55 and older who live in the service area PACE programs. Um, states can also add it on as a Medicaid benefit, um, but it's a capitated managed care product, very similar to um, a SCO, if people are familiar with that where they provide direct care services offering medical and social activities. Um, there's income-based monthly premiums with no deductibles or co-pays for the services or provided drugs. Um, traditionally, we've seen these in Massachusetts operated by federally qualified health centers, but there's um, a focus on expanding PACE programs We've seen some managed care organizations get into this, and nationally, we've seen private equity start to invest. And in July 2021, MassHealth committed to expanding PACE to serve more individuals in Massachusetts by expanding service areas um, as the first step and then moving to bringing in new PACE providers. I think right now in the state, we have some what we call PACE deserts. The second um, is aging service access points. These are agencies that were created by statute and they're funded by the state um, and provide subsidized home care programs that deliver home and community-based services um, to elders, such as case management, service plan development, and referrals. They also investigate um, elder abuse and neglect. Many of them operate the local uh, ombudsman programs, and they also contract directly or um, they also provide or contract directly for services for elders, such as home care, adult day health, meals on and meals on wheels. Then mobile integrated health um, is developed in Massachusetts over the last few years. It allows community um, EMS providers to utilize and mobilize their resource to deliver care and services outside of the acute care setting and coordinate with other providers. Um, we've seen this really work hand in hand with hospital at home and SNF level care at home, where instead of receiving those services within the institution, um, hospitals and nursing homes can partner with mobile integrated health EMS providers and other providers in the community to provide eligible individuals with those services at home. And again, that's keeping the cost down yet providing the same level of care. Um, you know, throughout the pandemic, we saw CMS has had a waiver to allow hospital at home. You know, specifically, they're not requiring nursing to be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week and have an, an RN uh, immediately available. I think 
on the nursing home side and in the the housing um, for senior housing, there's concept of greenhouse model, which is small models to help with infection control, keep all, keeping individuals in a more home-like setting. This will continue to be championed and pushed out. Um, you know, some of the challenges, uh, sorry, on the Massachusetts front are, you know, at least for the nursing homes, if you want to move to a greenhouse model, you need to get a determination of need before you can build a new facility and, um, you know, cost as well in terms of just building now can be very costly. So those are some of the barriers there, but we've also seen a move towards in a cross post-acute care to payment reform. Right now, each type of post-acute provider is paid on a different um, formulary. The time for the payments varies. So there's been a move and a focus, especially I think MedPAC is pushing for this, to align payment on the post-acute care side, really look to shift to value-based care. Um, as we've seen, you know, some of the PACE program and SCOs are, are starts of that, but to expand on that and the concept of accountable care organizations and deploy, you know, more electronic health records to ease the transitions of care. You know, we've seen the the deployment and expansion of telehealth and use of AI and robotics, I think, is only going to continue and help innovate uh, in the post-acute care settings. Um, so some of the unintended innovations, but really great ones that have come about from COVID are, you know, we're still under a federal state of emergency and CMS has put in place a lot of waivers for all the various levels of post-acute care that have given the providers a lot of flexibility to be able to deliver um, care. For example, nursing homes historically needed, you needed a three-night stay in the hospital before you could be admitted to a nursing home. And there's a waiver of the three-day rule um, in place. Now, a lot of the training requirements for staff across nursing home, home health and hospice has been waived or greatly reduced or delayed, um, allowing to get workforce in there more quickly. And, you know, on the state side, the Commonwealth has really, you know, come to the table and tried to help alleviate the backlog and, and ease the throughput um, of patients. They've waived the need for prior authorizations in certain instances. They've expedited licensures for individual professionals. Um, they've helped expand nursing home short-term rehab capacity. There's been an extension of admission hours into facilities, you know, in the evenings and on weekends. On the assisted living side, there was a waiver to allow skilled care where historically they had to bring in home health agencies to deliver um, medication or a family had to come by if, if, if your loved one needed some medication that needed administering because it's a non-medical setting here in Massachusetts, that happened. We've seen additional funding opportunities and we've seen um, telehealth expansion. So I could go on and on, but I want to be able to turn it over to our panel. Um, you know, I think I just, we're going to talk about transitions of care, collaborations between acute and post-acute, 
compliance and enforcement, workforce challenges and innovations in post-acute care. So um, thank you and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, I will mention that if any of the attendees would like to get a copy of Emily's And I think you're still muted. Oh. No? Okay, maybe my end. Um, can, can the rest of the panel hear me? Um, so if you'd like a copy of Emily's slides, um, please know that those will be available. You can either reach out to Emily directly or they'll be available um, through uh, the BBA. Uh, we are now going to move into the moderated Q&A portion of the discussion. I will uh, preface this uh, in a few different ways. One, by reiterating that uh, Emily and I are incredibly um, delighted to have a panel of this experience and diversity. And so I ask as each of the panelists initially gives a response to a question, if you could maybe take a moment to explain your role in the ecosystem, what your organization does and what perspective you think you um, bring to the table, I think that would be useful for the audience. I will also um, observe that this is by design intended to be both a legal and non-legal um, update. Uh, so as um, Emily's remarks suggest, we're going to combine the two Within legal, there's certainly the regulatory and there's certainly some enforcement and compliance issues that we will touch upon. Um, we also uh, recognize that there are both opportunities and challenges, and we're going to try to balance between the two so that we give you a clear sense of the magnitude of some of those challenges, uh, but we also give you um, a, a robust discussion of the opportunities that um, Emily touched upon. So in keeping with that, um, the, first, uh, the first question for the group, and for this question in particular, I am gonna ask every member of the panel to give a brief response. Um, the question is, what do you see right now as the single biggest challenge facing the post-acute sector? If everybody gives the exact same answer, that won't be nearly as beneficial for the audience as if we um, change it up a bit. But Mary, um, I'm going to start with you. And Mary, as you introduce yourself, it may be useful not only to talk about um, the extraordinary work that Hebrew Senior Life does, but to also mention uh, your role with the uh, Public Health Council. Certainly. And, um, and you can hear me, Ian. And thank you for the opportunity to participate in the Boston Bar Association's webinar today. Um, all of us on this panel have a love and a compassion for post-acute care, as you'll hear through the next hour. My position at Hebrew Senior Life, I've been the president of Hebrew Senior Life for the past 12 years, overseeing a continuum of post-acute services. We have a network of seven different lines of service in the post-acute network. We service uh, in a day in a snapshot, about 1,500 seniors are touched by more than 1,200 frontline staff. So as you can imagine, the biggest challenge for me as a provider, delivering the care and the post-acute care to seniors is workforce. Approximately 3,000 
healthcare leaders are surveyed by the American College of Healthcare Executives every year. And for the past many, many years that I can remember, the three top challenges were financial quality and workforce. In fiscal year 23, 21, and 22, there was a shift in those responses where workforce, which was number three, moved up to the number one most critical challenging issue. So not only as a provider, I tell you it's challenging, but I say across the country, healthcare leaders have now put that as the number one challenge. It's affecting um, not only the post-acute network, but I share with you um, all of the healthcare continuum, but I do believe most significantly the nursing home industry. And as you had heard Emily mention, nursing homes not only do take seniors for the rest of their lives, they provide short-term rehab, some provide outpatient, rest home, a necessity as a component of the healthcare continuum. There are 15,000 across the country and 350 in Massachusetts. Prior to the pandemic, every healthcare service line and industry had a single digit vacancy rate. We knew it before the pandemic. And now it's risen to double digits. We have seen other areas of the healthcare continuum begin to recover. Nursing homes have not. Nursing homes continue with a vacancy rate in double digits and a struggling. So we should be committed as a healthcare industry to assisting and supporting um, the nursing homes as well as the other post-acute continuums. You'll hear in other portions of this uh, discussion that we will talk about that impact of labor shortages in the post-acute continuum, which are limiting transfers from hospitals and are delaying the necessary care that our patients all need. So Ian, I also wanted to share with you that I have the privilege of sitting on the Mass Hospital Association Board and as well the Public Health Council. Public Health Council being a council appointed by a 14-member council, appointed by 12 members by the governor, two other members from secretariat positions. We promulgate rules, we promulgate rules and regulations for Massachusetts. We look at what is best for the public health. We look at what it could range from signage in an emergency room to approving determination of need applications and also managing cost and good quality across the system. I will share with you serving on that council. I'm very proud of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and the work they have done for the Commonwealth. And as a side joke, I will share with you that on the Massachusetts Hospital Association board two months ago, the acute care hospital CEOs started talking about the difficulty of transferring their patients into post-acute settings. I finally raised my hand and said, I'm sitting here, you know. So I think the uh, the opportunity to talk about post-acute today is a great opportunity for all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Mary. Um, and in, in keeping with my promise, we're going to kind of go around um, the um, the Hollywood squares or uh, Brady Bunch squares, however however you want to characterize it. And Kimberly, if you could maybe introduce yourself and um, give a brief statement of what you see as the single biggest challenge. Absolutely. And also, uh, again, thank you for the opportunity, um, as Mary said, to present, um, to be on this panel with um, this esteemed uh, group of panelists, I will say. So it really is an honor to participate. 
I am a registered nurse. It is my, I have over 30 years of home health and hospice, uh, clinical operations and regulatory and uh, regulatory compliance experience. My role uh, in my role as managing director uh, for Symmetry, which was uh, a a healthcare consulting company, formerly um, would would maybe known as uh, Simeon Healthcare Consultants and also Black Tree Healthcare Consulting. Uh, We did merge uh, and we now we do have the largest home health and hospice consulting firm in the country. In addition, we also have uh, have joined together with some significant uh, behavioral health partners. So we are have expanded uh, both from traditional home health and hospice across the post-acute setting, again, with a focus on growth in the behavioral health care um, space. My for my team, we or we oversee all federal and state regulatory uh, state audits uh, and appeals, and uh, work with organizations all the way up through the um, through ALJ hearings, as well as uh, serve as independent review organization for the Office of Inspector General, um, program integrity um, and compliance um, CIA's. Uh, agreements, as well as state agreements as well, serving as as an IRO. Uh, What I, in addition, we also provide survey readiness um, uh, uh, and and follow-up services. I am a member of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization Regulatory Committee, the Quality Committee for Hospice for the National Association for um, home care and hospice, as well as both a member of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts, the Hospice Federation of Massachusetts, and also the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home, where I served as the Vice President of Clinical and Regulatory Services. What I I'm just going to build on what Mary had had said in terms of and I uh, of of the the biggest challenge. Absolutely, workforce. Um, but a spin that I would say on workforce, in addition to the um, uh, actually um, recruiting, um, but also retaining staff, but also re- re- recruiting and retaining staff with specific expertise. For example, behavioral health and ensuring, while also continuing to meet patient needs and regulatory environment, uh, regulatory requirements, which of course um, is, uh, are, are changing and have changed. There are different regulatory requirements that providers need to be aware of. For hospice, um, there's, there's a continued need for awareness of hospice uh, across, this, across all settings to ensure appropriate admission, appropriate time for admission to hospice so that we don't have um, the admissions are not too late, if you will, um, to be able to really um, support the benefit of hospice care. And what we are finding is um, that providers are working to address these challenges with innovative care models um, and training and training programs. So we'll be talking more about that, I think, in the course of the of this presentation. Thank you, Kimberly. Alyssa, do you want to give a quick introduction and then give your take on the biggest challenge? Sure. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Alyssa Sherman. I'm president of Leading Age Massachusetts, and I also want to thank uh, the Boston Bar Association for this opportunity to be be part of this 
this discussion today. Um, so Leading Age Massachusetts, we are an association representing not-for-profit providers of housing and services for older adults across the continuum. So again, our, our members are all uh, operate mission-driven nonprofit organizations, but really uh, the whole spectrum. So in skilled nursing facilities uh, and rehab, rest homes, assisted living, what we, continuing care retirement communities, um, uh, uh, affordable senior housing, so just independent living, uh, and a range of home and community-based services. So we really have a, a, a vision that all older adults um, should be able to live in age-friendly communities and receive the services that they need when they need them in the place that they call home. Um, so uh, surprising and sorry to, to you know, <laughs> we're all given the same answers, but uh, the, the, the absolutely, without a doubt, the greatest challenge is, is workforce um, for, for all of our members, regardless of the type of, of care they provide, I think is, as Emily and Mary have mentioned, you know, most critical for the nursing facilities and in the nursing. Um, but I will say, really, uh, it's it's difficult also to recruit needed numbers of folks to work in dining and and maintenance, which are really critical positions. Um, and then the other thing that I that I'll say, which is is really also has been really challenging and concerning is we've had a lot of administrators who have been incredibly burnt out and have left the field, you know, following COVID. A lot of people who've, who've kind of retired maybe earlier than they expected. Um, and so the challenge of trying to recruit, um, you know, knowledgeable uh, uh administrators to run facilities with all of the challenges facing this field is, is a tremendous challenge in addition to uh, making sure that, that we're able to recruit the, the nurses and CNAs to provide you know, the, the direct care. Um, so, uh, so obviously workforce, yeah, is huge. Great. Thank you, Alyssa. And um, look forward to talking perhaps a bit more about unique um, challenges and opportunities for the not-for-profit post-acute sector. Adam, your um, perspective here is um, distinctive and important. So if you could um, reintroduce yourself and uh, answer that same question, um, but doing so from the, the <laughs> perspective of the hospital and health system sector. Yeah, no, and thank you, thank you very much, and, and and thank you, Emily. I think the uh, the prior presentation was great uh, table setting for kind of the whole conversation that we'll be having here today. So my name is Adam Del Molino. I'm the director of virtual care and clinical affairs at the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. Uh, the Hospital Association is the trade association for our both our acute and our post acute care hospitals here in Massachusetts. Um, we do information education and advocacy on behalf of our hospitals, and I like to say that I work for. Mary, um, because Hebrew uh, is a member of, of the hospital association. Um, because I'm not allowed to say that uh, workforce is the single biggest challenge and I have to have a different answer, I'm going to shift and, and, and talk about capacity. Um, capacity um, from 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 the perspective that, I, that I've been working on has become the single biggest challenge that we've been working on now, seemingly for the past two and a half, three years. Um, MHA has convened stakeholder groups um, with Alyssa, with Mary, and with many others that started through the pandemic and are continuing now as we move forward here. We have a post-acute transitions of care and emergency preparedness work group that brings together all these stakeholders to think about how we can standardize or bring innovative care models into Massachusetts um, and 
thinking about uh, other ideas and opportunities. You know, we have, as Emily's presentation noted that she said she took from our, our survey that we started to develop back in March of last year, you know, we have 1,043 patients who are waiting for discharge. The number of patients uh, who are waiting for discharge to skilled nursing facilities in the state who've been waiting for 30 days or more has now reached 45%. Um, these numbers are are staggering and numbers that we had not seen pre-pandemic. Um, and we're only starting to see now, even amongst the home care numbers, you know, a rise in the number of um, patients who are waiting longer and longer to receive home care services. Um, and that's starting to be, you know, kind of very concerning to us. And, you know, but it's a recognition that all this falls back on the workforce challenge. Um, you know, the 23% vacancy rates at skilled nursing facilities is a real is a real challenge and it's a limiting barrier for those SNFs to be able to take additional patients, which compounds all of the challenges moving backwards in a hospital to the emergency department. And I think that's um, those capacity challenges are the single biggest uh, concern, as Mary noted, for, for the MHA board. Um, and, and it's the single thing that we're continuing to raise when we have conversations with state leaders, with insurers, um, with all the providers in, in, across the care continuum that, that are on today's call. Um, you know, these, these, are, these are challenges that we're bringing up in every conversation that we have um, because it is, it, the, the pandemic has, has shown and demonstrated that there, the silos need to be broken and uh, that we need to work together and we need to have frequent communication across all these different settings in order to be able to you know, efficiently, you know, address the capacity and the, just the, the incredible amounts of patients who are seeking care at our facilities. Thank you, Adam. And Emily, um, is there anything you would add or highlight in your presentation that you would identify as um, the single biggest challenge aside from the issues that have already been identified by the other panelists? Right. Well, I think from my perspective, I think the biggest issue which comes across my desk is compliance in the regulatory environment. You know, I think that plays into all the other issues and, and adds to the challenges. It's a very challenging, complicated regulatory environment and compliance, you know, is should be high um, priority for every provider, both acute and post-acute. And that just adds um, to financial considerations and, you know, ability to innovate and be creative and understanding the regulatory environment as well. And we are going to, um, as we work through the, um, the pre-populated questions, compliance is definitely a topic we're going to address. I will add um, one additional perspective on challenges. Um, my role today is as moderator and I will um, adhere to that role pretty rigorously, uh, but I do um, practice in this space. And, it, it, you know, I think I, the challenge I'm about to observe, I think you could also observe for hospitals and many others in the healthcare delivery um, spectrum. And that is that when you're facing all of these immediate practical issues, workforce, financial stress, burgeoning federal and state regulations, and you're trying to, at the same time, deliver services day in and day out, there is a risk of missing the strategic imperatives 
and opportunities that we're now about to talk about. So, you know, for me, um, one of the challenges is um, for our respective clients and constituents, how do you find the time, the energy, and the resources to take a step back and be strategic at a moment in time that, yes, is offering um, unprecedented challenges, but is also, as Emily and the rest of us are laying out, is um, creating um, perhaps momentum to get some innovative things done and um, how, how do um, our clients balance sort of those immediate stresses with uh, the desire and the opportunity to be strategic. So that um, turns us to our uh, next topic, which is innovation in the healthcare sector. And as Emily related, but as we are about to discuss, um, there's innovation taking place at every level. Some of it is technology enabled. Some of it is um, the desire for more care to be delivered in the home. There's um, the interest that Adam and others have in having more um, effective placement of uh, acute patients in post-acute settings. Uh, so with all of that, um, let's spend some time talking about those innovations and opportunities. Alyssa, from your vantage point, what do you think are some of the factors that are driving that innovation? Um, sure. So I, I think, you know, and to the point you just made about um, the critical need to be able to balance the day-to-day -day pressures with, you know, being forward-looking and making sure that, you know, you're able to be strategic. Um, I think there was a lot of innovation that was going on pre-pandemic. Pre um, and then, of course, during COVID, it was kind of the, the height of it all that many providers could do to just kind of make sure they were keeping their residents safe and their staff safe and kind of making it through the day. Um, and hoping that they were going to be able to get back to being strategic and innovative again. And, and uh, you know, so in it, and now it's that um, uh, I, I think COVID itself and how the, the pandemic has continued to evolve um, in and of itself is driving innovation. Providers need to figure out ways to make sure that they are being um, you know, uh, operating in more creative ways. Um, but I would say, you know, probably the two biggest drivers of innovation um, have been certainly, um, you know, changes in, in consumer preferences and consumer expectations, as well as, you know, just a, a policy changes and, and, and many of these, the, the issues that um, Emily talked about in terms of doing more to really drive care into the community and out of uh, out of uh, uh, nursing homes as as a um, or into more kind of uh, least restrictive settings. Um, and so those have led to uh, providers to to make decisions as they've seen changes. Even, you know, I know Emily showed her slides about, you know, still a lot of post-acute care, more a uh, higher percentage going in Massachusetts to nursing home care. But there's been tremendous decrease in, in Medicare utilization um, pre-pandemic uh, with um, you know, ACOs and, and just in terms of length of stay really dropping dramatically. So providers really needing to focus on, um, you know, 
what are they, what, what can they be best at, you know, really focusing on, on the areas where they can, um, uh, you know, be that effective partner with the hospitals, um, uh, as well as looking at opportunities to do more in the community and partner more in the community um, as more and more care is going into the community. Um, you know, I also mentioned the, the preferences, uh, consumer preferences, which is which are also primarily to, to stay home and receive care as much as possible in the community. But I think those are the types of um, uh, uh, factors that have led to the rise of things like the small house greenhouse model that Emily talked about, where um, you know, you can receive that skilled care in a more person-centered environment, a more home-like environment um, that now has even shown uh, to, to have uh, uh, more positive outcomes in many cases. There's been some research, certainly during COVID, that showed the greenhouse model of care uh, demonstrated, you know, better outcomes in terms of uh, lowered um, cases of COVID and, and, and deaths from COVID compared to a more traditional nursing home. Um, I think that, you know, you've also seen um, uh, things like, I know Emily talked about the PACE program um, and PACE expansion, PACE partnering with uh, assisted living, affordable senior housing providers to be able to offer more services and supports to those who wouldn't be able to live in 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 a maybe an assisted living setting or you know don't you know be able to keep them out of nursing homes longer. So um you know I think it's it is the combination of this the policy and 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 consumer preferences that we're really seeing that that are driving some of some of these innovations. And it's I'm really happy to see that providers are being able to to start being more proactive again, uh, you know, um to start planning. Uh, we're seeing that again. Um, for for longer term planning. Great. Thank you, Alyssa. Um, Mary, you, for reasons already explained, um, have the opportunity to see innovation as it's developing from multiple vantage points. What I'm hoping that we spend um, the next few minutes doing, first through you, Mary, and then through a few of the other um, panelists, is give some very concrete examples of some of the most exciting innovation that you're um, seeing out there. Mary, from your perspective across the board, Kimberly, from your vantage point, um, the way that hospice and home health is being utilized um, to innovate. And then finally, Adam, from your perspective, what are some of the most exciting partnerships that you're seeing? Um, between what has traditionally been acute and what traditionally has been thought of as post-acute. So Mary, starting with you, sure. you it all, what, sure. what would you highlight for this? Sure. So I do want to um, absolutely support Alyssa's comment about the um, consumer and the elders and family members. Home is where folks want to be. And so the innovation and the focus, even though at Hebrew Senior Life, we have 700 institutional beds, which have consistently been filled, but to Alyssa's point, nursing homes are running at much lower occupancy than before. So we almost don't have a choice. Keep people home and what programs can we innovate? Policies are driving that too. So also at Hebrew um, Senior Life, we do have a research and teaching center. So we're able to look at the patient-centered care, the research and the teaching component, so as we train the new geriatricians and those professionals coming in to take care of our elders in post-acute settings, 
getting their input and really the opportunity to gain some of that, Ian, as you said. So as Alyssa said, the home. So the home is that, and, and actually Emily, Emily said it too, let's talk about what the home is because the home can actually be a broad spectrum. We just don't have to think about we're well, going into somebody's freestanding home with a roof and a white picket fence. The, uh, as Alyssa said, some of the affordable senior housing, the congregate living, the assisted living, um, there are many um, building apartment buildings in Metro Boston that are, met, are, are all senior focused and really surrounding these seniors with services from anything as simple to a homemaker, a homemaker going in, preparing meals. What that does for a senior is keep them there. And they may be the only person they, that senior sees every day, but that's so important. And coupled with that, Ian, is the opportunity for these uh, health integrated vans that Emily also talked about. We've just purchased and developing two vans to go to these uh, congregate settings and affordable housing settings and provide uh, services on site, some imaging, some testing, some blood pressure, some medication management. Uh, the understanding recently in data is most senior, a uh, large proportion of seniors go to the emergency room because their medications aren't managed, a waste of an emergency room visit. So as much as we can do in the community through whether it's the health integration vans, whether it is sending community providers out, working with our aging area service providers um, and uh, the technology, telehealth, monitoring. Absolutely, technology in the home now has raised the opportunity for people to stay home, speak to a nurse, get their monitoring done. So continued advances in any home setting, not just that freestanding home, but any home setting um, is absolutely the future. It's the lowest cost opportunity. It's the highest quality and it fits the triple aim. So I think that our, our focus, Ian and Emily, will continue on as much in the home-based services as we can. And I, I'm hoping, Kimberly, you agree with me. <laughs> so Kimberly, if you want to give your perspective, you know, with that emphasis on hospice and home health. Absolutely. And yes, Mary, I concur 100%, as well as with Alyssa's comments. Um, I, I would say this, uh, what what Mary's talking about in Alyssa, my very distant background, it was uh, when we had community VNAs, right? The years when we had public visiting nurse associations, public health and caring for the, per the patient and being able to assimilate um, what we would consider to be non-Medicare you know, paid services over the years, certainly with the different payer changes, um, the focus has changed for the home health agencies, largely with it focusing on the, what I would call Medicare certified home, home care. Um, what we're seeing with the, with these opportunities for innovation is, is swinging the pendulum back. And so I think that the, the, the opportunity for home health and for hospice is identifying and continuing to identify where does home health and hospice fit in with the innovative models that we're talking about. So hospital to home, the mobile integrated health, health um, as well as the development of community-based palliative care programs, chronic disease management, what does that look like across the entire continuum to really have the goal of reducing hospital uh, unplanned hospitalizations um, and reduce costs, first of all, improve patient outcomes, but also reduce costs across the whole healthcare delivery system. 
and the advocacy absolutely surrounding increased ability to utilize telehealth. Um, this came to the forefront for hospice and for home health with COVID. Um, there are advocacy initiatives to continue, not only continue um, telehealth, and in some cases, some aspects have been made permanent. However, there's still work to be done in addition to reimbursement for telehealth services, um, uh, particularly in home health. Um, there is a double-edged sword with some of the innovative, um, uh, the innovation that we are experiencing. For example, we know that the Office of Inspector General is conducting an audit of home health services uh, provided at, during, as telehealth during the COVID-19 public health emergency, in addition to other compliance targets. So what that means is organizations that are innovative need to ensure that they are following the regulations and they have the documentation and the processes in place to be able to demonstrate the appropriate utilization of these services. Um, one example of innovation from a state standpoint uh, for Mass Health, the continuous skilled nursing services, which are nursing services for medically complex children, um, the um, uh, for services essentially provided in the home to um, eliminate or reduce the um, the 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 um the the uh, the, the patients um, need to be able to be institutionalized long term. The issue here is that in statute, the families are promised that their medically complex children can stay at home. Um, but historically, as we talk about workforce shortage, around twenty to thirty percent of those authorized nursing hours are going unfilled due to staffing. Even though MassHealth did increase rates, it hasn't done much in terms of being able to meet that need. Which, again, we've talked about on this this uh, and on this this panel with other settings as well. MassHealth does have a proposal that would create a new service for families to receive some of those services at an aid level, which could all which could also be provided by a family member. But there are questions about what the aid can and can't do, whether those uh, aid Aid hours um, can aid hours can um, replace um, nursing hours or supplement nursing hours while still prom, uh, keeping in in um, in line with the statute. So I say this from a legal perspective because there are you know potential. Um, this is from a from you know from a legal perspective looking at what. Would a proposal such as this, although it's very innovative, what does this do in terms of being able to um, meet the statutory requirements? So there's a lot of innovation, but we also have to, as Emily had pointed out, keeping compliance at the forefront and, and making sure that we are you know, advocating for certainly for the patients, but also ensuring that our providers are, are, um, you know, demonst are demonstrating compliance. Thank you, Kimberly. We're turning it over to um, Adam for his take on innovation and in particular um, value-based care uh, arrangements now including um, what we're characterizing as post-acute providers um, and those innovative collaborations. Um, before Adam, I ask you to comment, I'm gonna give a heads up to Emily and Kimberly our next big topic is going to be compliance, um, but I'm going to switch the order and I'm going to have Emily go first and talk about um, fraud enforcement and fraud related compliance. And then Kimberly, I'll turn it over to you for that interplay between quality and compliance. 
But before we do that, Adam, um, if you could comment on what you see as some of the most interesting partnership-related innovation out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of this, and, and I think Alyssa was getting at this too, is, um, and I, I agree with Kimberly and Marion in terms of all their comments, um, but what's being driven is being driven by payers. And when I specifically say payers, I mean both the state payers, the federal payers, and the commercial payers, I think, in the community. And that's that's what's driving a lot of these things. You know, for example, you know, the federal government received almost 700, I think, million dollars, uh, um, you know, get to the state for ARPA funding. And that is, you know, kind of just starting to become online and get distributed and, and figured out. And they're going to they have to spend that money before, I think, fiscal year 2025 um, for those home and community-based services. One kind of innovative partnership that's just going to be getting off the ground and there should be an announcement for forthcoming from the state in the next few weeks um, was for something called the Hospital to Home Partnership Program, where, um, as kind of Emily kind of alluded to, they're going to be embedding case managers from aging services access points into hospitals to assist with discharges uh, to the community and to the home. I think sometimes um, there's just not necessarily in some of the hospitals a, a recognition or kind of an understanding of all the wraparound services that are available in the community and how you build uh, a care plan for a patient so when they do go home. And I think bringing this expertise into our hospitals and partnering with the ASAPs is really important um, in terms of being able to kind of continue to to uh, to kind of advance discharges to the home. And I think that's that's a small step. They're going to be probably um, having about 10 pilot programs that are going to be kind of coming online here in the next few months. Um, and that, that project will continue through 2025. So I think that's really important. Um, you know, we talked about mobile integrated health. We talked about hospital at home. We talked about SNF at home and we talked about telehealth. I think, you know, with both the, the hospital at home program and with telehealth, those are extended, you know, you know, through the Medicare program through 2025. Um, we're going to have to see, you know, what a permanent policy is going to look like going forward after that. And I think, you know, providers want to know the certainty with regards to the payment um, and know what, what kind of what's that structure going to look like, you know, post 2025. We're grateful for the federal government having included that funding um, but and, and support and coverage. Um, but, you know, here in Massachusetts, amongst our commercial payers, you know, two of the largest commercial payers in Massachusetts are going to be reducing funding for non-behavioral health telehealth services um, by 20 percent. Um, you know, one starting on March 1st and one starting on July 1st. That's a big concern for a lot of our members, because it's not just getting at kind of uh, the reduction in kind of simple practice expenses of cotton balls and tongue depressors. It's cutting really to kind of getting to the point of salary and, and kind of changing and forcing the incentives for the utilization of telehealth to change. So I think that's a really kind of important piece in all of this. Um, you know, the, the changes we talked about, about the bringing the basic health care to assisted living uh, residences that Emily alluded to, that's been a great help um, in terms of kind of decanting uh, patients and discharging patients, um, you know, to facilities to sometimes overwhelm skilled nursing facilities. And that's been really helpful to be able to bring patients to, to assisted living and, and really helpful and important, I think, as well. Um, just a couple of things that I would mention. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that I think we have to think about longer term is, you know, the state has been so generous in terms of providing expanded short-term rehab capacity every time there's been a, a midwinter surge. Is that something that becomes kind of um, just what we do? Because we're going to have combination of COVID and flu here 
for the foreseeable future, we're going to be vaccinating folks, you know, on an annual basis, at least that's what the federal government's talking about now. But is this something that kind of becomes part of the, the process of just kind of what we do to bring on to continue um, moving forward to be able to handle a lot of the capacity constraints that we're all facing? Um, I think that's that's a great innovation that's been out there. And then the last innovation that I would just mention um, is uh, the co-location of services at skilled nursing facilities. We haven't mentioned um, the fact that the state has now approved and, and these will be coming online, but the dialysis dens um, at skilled nursing facilities. And this is going to be, I, I think, really helpful um, because of the core, it, it it kind of eliminates the coordination of transportation for outpatient hemodialysis for many patients who are at skilled nursing facilities. Um, if we can co-locate services with doing home-based dialysis in a skilled nursing facility, you will be able to have the potential, you know, to to not have to have all that scheduling and time that's taken up administratively to work with an ambulance company or a chair car company to set up those dialysis appointments. Um, and it just takes a huge burden off of the skilled nursing facilities and the hospitals to be able to coordinate some of that 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 treatment for those patients. And, and that's really an important piece, I think, here moving forward. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for highlighting the co-location, because you're right, that is significant and um, hasn't um, yet been really highlighted today. Um, so we're going to shift gears as as promised. Uh, this is, after all, the Boston Bar Association. So we're going to um, talk a little bit about compliance and enforcement, and um, then, time permitting, I'd, you know, I'd like to give this, you know, a, a, a thorough um, kind of treatment, but I also am hoping that we have five minutes at the end uh, to talk about a few other things that I'd like to um, make sure we put in front of the audience before we um, bid our farewell. So Emily, talk to us about um, fraud enforcement, big, big, big topic. Um, and then Kimberly, as I said, we'll talk about the interplay between uh, quality and some of the federal and state initiatives. But as you talk about fraud enforcement, if you could also maybe tack on to the end an acknowledgement of the de-densification initiative in Massachusetts, which you know is somewhat unique and many of our audience are going to be aware of it, but not everyone will be. So if you could cover those two things in maybe five minutes and then we'll turn it over to Kimberly. Absolutely. A lot to cover in five minutes, but I'm going to keep it uh, short and sweet. Um, so as I alluded to in my presentation, you know, we have a really active Medicaid fraud division here in Massachusetts out of the AG's office. You know, under Maura Healy, it was very active. You know, we'll see under this new administration if it continues, but they really focus on quality of care, documentation, compliance with the heavily regulated um, industry that it is. And, you know, I think one of the challenges that post-acute providers face is that they are regulated by so many, so they are scrutinized by so many. So oftentimes those in post-acute care, whether you're a nursing home, a hospice, or home health, you know, the Department of Public Health may be looking at you, Mass Health may be doing a claims audit review. And then sometimes, depending on the outcome of those agencies, the Medicaid Fraud Division is also looking at you. So you could have the same issue being reviewed 
and um, scrutinized by multiple agencies, either simultaneously or consecutively. So that becomes very challenging. You know, I think areas in the past where we've seen a lot of scrutiny has been, you know, as I pointed out, I have a lot of clients' documentation um, is heavily scrutinized, making sure you have the correct signatures on all the various you know, consents, whether or not you're a nursing home and you have patients on antipsychotics, making sure you have the proper consents to deliver the antipsychotics. If you're a home health agency, making sure you have the proper documentation on the face-to-face um, hospice, you know, similarly making sure your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted. And, you know, that Staying on top of all of that is a job unto itself. So that is why the compliance officer in every organization is a critical piece um, in terms of, you know, making sure that they're doing random audits of records and practices um, and always figuring out what's the most critical piece of an agency to stay on top of and re-educate your staff and re-education. And I think, you know, where a challenge comes, and I think a lot of providers get into trouble is given the high staff turnover and the workforce challenges is, you know, education and training and how often you're in a constant state of education and training if you have new folks coming in the door, you know, constantly. So I think that that's a big challenge um, that he leads to this. You know, we've seen them go after for-profits. We've seen, you know, fraud in nonprofits. We've seen in small, a lot of small mom and pop, you know, agencies. I think historically, post-acute care used to be less um, run by big organizations and, you know, adult day health before it was licensed by the Department of Public Health in 2015, 2016, home health, which had a it may still have a moratorium for mass health um, to open up new home health agencies. You saw a lot of, you know, small um, homegrown agencies pop up. And, you know, if you don't know the rules of the road, this is where you get in trouble. Um, So, you know, in theory, it sounds like there's a lot of access to care, but, you know, on the back end, it can come with a lot of headache if you don't do it properly. Um, So that, that's my sort of two minutes on fraud to talk about de-densification, which I think probably a lot of the audience knows about. In May 1 of 2022, uh, regulation in the Department of Public Health put out um, requires all nursing homes that historically have had three and four bedded rooms to only have singles and doubles. Um, you know, I think The rationale behind this that was presented was that, you know, it was in need for um, infection control and this is going to be better for the patients. I think it's been a real challenge for the nursing home industry as a whole um, to deal with it. I think it's infected providers very differently. Um, Some providers, you know, they have really old facilities. It becomes very costly to do the construction. Um, Some of them are landlocked. There's zoning limitations that prohibit this, you know, so that's taking a number of beds out of the facilities um, that historically, some of them in these three and four bedded rooms have been in specialty units catering to behavioral health patients or other um, special programs. You know, some providers are very high quality, you know, so you're losing a lot of 
beds from the system that, you know, as we're countering an aging and growing population, you know, maybe someone's not in them today, um, but, you know, down the road, there may be the need for them again, as well as at the end of the day, you know, how are we funding the redevelopment and, you know, the new innovative up-to-date facilities, many, you know, we still have facilities in the Commonwealth that were built in the 60s, right? It's not easy to take a building from the 1960s and 70s and bring it up to date. Um, it requires a lot of, you know, oftentimes you can't even do it, but, you know, it's very expensive and just with the cost of building and, and taking out financing and the capital component um, of nursing facilities is really not accounted for in the reimbursement process. So I could go on and on about de-densification. It's been a big focus of the nursing home industry. Um, you know, some, a lot of facilities are complying with it. Others are, you know, some turned in beds, some are doing projects to comply. There are others that are challenging it out there. So it's a real hot topic in um, the nursing home community. No, and not one that you can do justice to, but I think we would be remiss if in this um, presentation, we did not acknowledge that at least for um, SNFs, this is potentially a significant issue in the Commonwealth right now. So Kimberly, if you could maybe just um, yeah. mention um, the relationship between um, compliance workforce and quality, and the relationship between quality and enforcement um, with apologies for the fact that you don't have nearly enough time to do it. I do <laughs> like you five minutes at the end for us to go around the horn one more time where folks will give their closing thoughts. Um, sure, thanks, Ann. And I, I agree with everything that Emily had said. We collaborate very often with law firms on the compliance side. I call compliance the payment side. So what we see in home health and hospice is similar to across all settings is the alphabet soup of government audits. So not just from the state perspective, but at the same time, an organization can have TPE, SMERC, UPIC, RAC, or an OIG or program integrity audit. Um, and, and the issue here is making sure that you, from a quality perspective and compliance, that you do have staff that and managers that are trained in appropriate documentation to meet um, both the payer requirements as well as the quality and surveyor regulatory requirements. We know that on the government audit side, um, the, the key here is that there are dollars associated with those findings, um, including paybacks and potentially extrapolation. So that, that typically is a, is a key area that we want to make sure that providers have a proactive way of addressing um, over an oversight process and compliance program. But in addition, um, there also have been survey changes and survey, remember that's the survey side is regulatory. Um, in this, this year uh, or this past year, hospices um, did implement federal survey changes and enforcement remedies, which include civil monetary penalties, which um, of course have been in, in effect for other settings, including home health for quite some time. In addition, CMS is planning to release this week um, changes to the state operations manual 
schedule for hospice, which also includes changes in survey protocols and updates to the interpretive guidelines, which focus largely on the documentation um, issues that Emily alluded to, care planning, coordination of service, as well as quality assessment and performance improvement and patient rights. And um, home health providers in Mass um, should be aware that Mass Health finalized home health regulations effective July 1st of 2022. So ensuring that that there's a, an understanding from leadership and then training and, and understanding and implementation to staff regarding all of these regulatory changes um, is extremely important to be able to stay abreast of, of all of these, the, these requirements and develop ongoing survey readiness and corporate compliance programs to ensure their processes and documentation meet these requirements. And I see, we see a lot of partnership with law firms and the league from the legal teams supporting agencies in the development of those compliance programs, certainly assisting on the back end, you know, with appeals, but we really want to organizations to proactively position themselves so that they are, uh, they can mitigate um, these, these issues and findings. Thank you, Kimberly. Um, one thing I would um, note, I am to some degree stating the obvious, but I think it, it's worth um, saying it out loud. What you're hearing from the panel is kind of the perfect storm of extraordinary workforce shortages coupled with um, the inevitable operational challenges associated with that. Well, simultaneously, we are seeing unprecedented federal and state regulatory and enforcement guidelines and actions and audits. It's, uh, you know, for those um, attorneys who are not in the business of paying attention to this sector every day, um, the degree to which there are new guidelines or regulations or initiatives announced, both um, federal and state is really um, pretty extraordinary. So with that, um, this is going to be, I believe, our last um, time uh, asking each person to uh, give uh, what they would encourage the audience to put at the very top of their list in terms of the next thing you do from an opportunistic perspective. You know, if you advise in this space, what do you think of the many things you could choose, what would you advise? And if each person could limit themselves to about 30 seconds, that will keep us on time, starting with Alyssa, then moving to Mary and then Adam. Well, I think that, you know, recognizing we're gonna be dealing with staffing shortages for, for, for some time and, and there needs to be a lot of effort working on expanding, building the pipeline, which is going to take some time because we have demographic um, imperative that that mean, you know, our, our workforce shortages aren't just today. It's really moving into the future where the needs are even going to be greater. But so I think with that, it's really encouraging providers to enter into some strategic partnerships and relationships to look at how can we 
break down more silos, you know, continue collaboration to really try to offer as much of a seamless transition for consumers kind of across the continuum as possible, look at more creative opportunities around sharing workforce. Um, you know, I think it's really going to be, again, those breaking down of the silos and trying to, to you know, create those strategic partnerships, which is which is really going to be key to success in the in the near term. Thank you. And um, thank you again for participating. Mary? Great, Alyssa, you took my number one, so I'll move to my number two. <laughs> and for this audience, what I would encourage in working with your healthcare clients is the work between the upcoming new executive branches. So our, of government, the executive branch and the legislative branch, and the opportunity to have those two branches work together. That will address our policies, our regulations, our opportunities to do more collaboration. And so we look forward in the Healy administration in our current legislative groups to really uh, don't drag it on. Like, let's make some significant improvements and uh, regulations that will impact this whole a continuum of service and most importantly, um, the post-acute uh, end. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. And thanks for being here. Adam? Um, this is gonna sound kind of strange, but it's education. Um, and I know that, that it sounds like something, but I, I go back to the beginning of Emily's presentation and she had included a copy of our post-acute care guide, um, helping consumers to understand all the different forms of post-acute care um, and what the impacts of, the, of those decisions and choices are for fam patients and their families, I think is, a, is kind of kind of an unsung area that we need to kind of start to focus on. We're kind of contemplating right now a campaign to encourage patients to complete healthcare proxies. And we know that that's so much that many of the challenges that we've had with capacity constraints is that patients do not have signed and completed healthcare proxies. Um, so an opportunity to encourage folks to make sure that they've had conversations about what their wishes are for in their healthcare decision making is a really important piece in all of this that I would definitely say because Mary and Alyssa already stole my ideas, um, is, is a good opportunity um, to kind of think about it, but educate and learn more about what the choices and what the decisions are as patients kind of move along the post-acute care uh, continuum and how that impacts their family, how that impacts their finances um, and any decisions that they have to make. Because that's, that's one of the areas that, um, you know, there's some underutilized resources, I think, that we need to start to look more uh, more at, at um, rest homes being just one example, um, and and that we can definitely kind of start to kind of go down that that kind of uh, that pipeline or that that turnpike. So thank you, I really appreciate thank it, you, Adam. And um, I will underscore education across the board, not just for um, potential consumers, but as you noted, Adam education in the hospital sector as two options, education among all of us apropos of this program, um, because um, this has been to some degree, if not a sleepy area, an area where there's been a lot of activity, but maybe has not received the degree of attention that it deserved. And now it's getting its moment in the sun for all sorts of reasons. And um, we all should be taking time to educate. Um, Kimberly and Emily, uh, we are at 101. So um, if there's anything you want to say ever so briefly, we can do it. Otherwise, um, we can thank um, our audience, which has, for the most part, stuck with us for 90 minutes. And um, I, I take that as a sign that all of you put on a terrific program. 
No, I just want to echo, you know, what all of our panelists said is really important. The conversation needs to continue. You know, we probably could have talked for another hour about um, post-acute care and beyond. So I just want to thank everybody um, for being a part of it. And, you know, I think collaboration and working together and understanding the regulatory framework and scope of services, right, and where boundaries are. Um, is also really important in figuring out how you can innovate because I think, you know, every provider in the post-acute space has purpose and, you know, has the ability to collaborate with each other and really build off and, and build a better care system. Great. Just uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, to join the presentation, the panel today. I concur with all comments and there is a great opportunity here. Um, for us to continue to build on what has been established and focus on what is best for the patient um, and, and where we can optimize patient's care and outcomes across all settings. Thank you um, so much for participating. And uh, thanks again to the Boston Bar Association, the Health Law Section, and um, importantly, our audience that, you know, took time out of their busy schedules to join us today. Um, if you if any of the audience members do want those slides or want to have follow up with any of us, know that that's available to you. And with that, we will uh, we will sign off. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank